I'm going to ask my able and wonderful assistant, Carol Heist, to come and help me move my props up a little bit here. Oh, I don't know. I just kind of, you've got them so balanced, I'm not sure I want to touch it. Okay. I will. We're going up. Up, up, and away in our spiritual, our spiritual balloon. Which way? That way. Well, I'm going to help you guys with a PowerPoint today because I printed up the PowerPoint. So while that's coming up, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 16 for a moment. Because this is not in your PowerPoint. Matthew 16. Go to verse 16. I want to show you kind of why we need to study a little bit of the historical background of the church. Anyway, Matthew 16. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Go to verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail. There is a whole set of beliefs out there that when Jesus said, upon this rock, he's saying, upon Peter. That's, what the, that's how the whole line of successions of popes come to be, because that's what they believe. But the reality is, if you know where this was, Jesus was talking, and he was in, he was in the very furthest reach of Judea, almost to the end of the Judea-Samaritan area, and he was standing on a cliff, and on this cliff are a bunch of temples to pagans. And he's standing there, and there's this revelation of who he is. And the reality is, is what he's saying is, is on this revelation of who I am, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, as he was looking at all of these pagan temples and their gates, he's going, and these gates will not prevail. So it's important to know context and it's important to know history. Otherwise, we get misinterpretations and we water down the message. Picking up a little bit, don't be alarmed by the PowerPoint, because as I said earlier in my opening, it's about giving you a resource tool that you can work through stuff at your own pace. We're working through the first 400 years of church history, and we are not going to cover the 400 years today. We're going to stop at about 200. But as we talked about last time, we move through all the way from eternity to the cross. And then from the cross, we're moving forward from there. And we talked about, if just reminding you, there's this transitional generation who has lived on both sides of the cross, which means they are steeped in what? Law. And how do you take people who are steeped in law and get them out of it? Well, you've got to talk to them where they're at. You've got to talk to them in their language. Peter, James, and John... That's what they did. They primarily went to the Jews who lived on both sides of the cross and they brought the message of grace to them. Realizing that they're trying to change a paradigm. How many of you know it's easy to change your paradigm, right? Uh, yeah, right. Uh, no, it's not. And Paul, right about 35 AD, Paul's standing there when Stephen is stoned. And between 35 AD and 50 AD, Paul gets knocked off his high horse, right? That's one way to shift your paradigm is to get knocked off your high horse, especially when Jesus does it. And so from 
from the time Paul has his Damascus Road experience, he's three years in sort of isolation being taught by Jesus. And then he goes out to the Gentiles. So between the time he goes out to the Gentiles and the time the Judaizers are starting to rise up and claim, wait a minute, it's not just grace, but it's grace plus circumcision. It's grace plus the law. There's this split starting already in the church. I mean, think about that. Jesus isn't even dead 50 years. Well, he's not even dead 20 years, and there's starting to be this schism in the church. And so the Holy Spirit now goes, no. And he calls the Council of Jerusalem. So let me, and we, I'm not going to read through all of this Jude stuff. I, I set up Jude last week as why we need to do this. Okay, and so I'm just going to let you look at Jude on your own. We covered that last week, and it's in your PowerPoint. But why focus on it? Why, what's all the fuss? There's this concern about falling away. Jude is really concerned that people are falling away from the faith already because you got this group over here saying, no, it's this. You got this group over here saying, no, it's that. And you got these other people who are just starting to come in who don't want to give up their petty practices from their paganism. And so you got all of these things going on, and Jude's going, wait a minute, time out. We have to come together and realize that God gave us a common faith through Jesus Christ. Isn't he our common faith? So, if he's our common faith, we have to hold fast to that. And so there were a lot of false teachers coming in, saying it was Jesus plus. Or there were teachers coming in who were saying, Jesus did not come in the flesh as the Son of God. He came in the flesh as a man, but he really wasn't the Son of God. And there were others saying that he never really died and was resurrected because that's just a figment of our imagination. I mean, there were all kinds of things starting to crop up. And so Jude starts the process of solidifying the faith. And so that's what I just want you to kind of look at all of that. He had concerns for heresies, and I've decided we're going to wait on dealing with the heresies to our next time we do this, probably in, in November, because I think it's too much to try to, to do at one time. And so the issues are of old are not unlike today, as I told you. It's important to have an informed study and understanding of church history. That will help us. It'll help us stay true to the truth of grace. Because one of the accusations against the revelation of grace by the Holy Spirit today is it's a new teaching. But it's not. And if you go back and you look at the early church fathers, it's not a new teaching. It's consistent with what Jesus taught. It's consistent with what the apostles taught. It's consistent with the first generation after the apostles, which we call the apostolic fathers. And it's consistent with the age of the apologists that come after them. So the first three generations of the church are all teaching grace. They don't always word it in the same way. And part of when you read their, their writings, you have to understand as you're moving through the first 200 years of church history, you got some people who are really behaving badly. You know, they're taking grace and they're going, well, if I'm under grace, I don't have to change my behavior. I can do whatever I want and I won't have a problem. And so they're trying to deal with some of that. And we hear that same argument today. Well, if, if, if there's grace, then why do I have to be concerned about what I do? Because in the natural, your choices have consequences because the wages of sin is death and that still applies in the natural, Right? My classic example of that is if I walk up and slap the bishop, I'm going to have a problem. <laughs> I don't think the bishop's going to take it. 
By the way, I've decided to extend his name because you see we have like the Bishop of Alexandria and we have the Bishop of Rome. This is now the Bishop of Grace. Just want you to know that. And I almost put his picture in the Apostolic Fathers, but I decided not to. (laughs) And, And every church age has a darkness because we all have darkness in us. We are we are we walk in a culture that Jesus calls that of the devil, that of darkness. And you know what? When people don't walk in truth, they walk in darkness and they spill it on everybody else. And we have been contaminated with darkness. So every church age has darkness, but every church age has Jesus, who is the light of the world being revealed by the Holy Spirit and His grace is the catalyst that blows open the door to His love coming forth and shining light on us. So, where do we start? We we look at Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Period. You see Jesus, you see the Father. And if you don't see Jesus doing it, you don't see the Father doing it. I don't think I see anywhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where Jesus called lightning bolts down on anybody. Do you? What happened when one of the apostles wanted to do that? Uh, No, that's not my way. We don't do that. And so we look at Jesus. We look at the apostles. We look at the disciples of the apostles. And we look at the early church apostolic leaders always asking the Holy Spirit for the revelation of truth. And then as we talked about, and we'll cover some more as we move forward, is periodically these church leaders get to the point where there is just too much dissension over an issue. So what do they do? They call the council. What does the Lord say about seeking the counsel of of many? It's a good thing. And the first church council was AD 50, which is the council of Jerusalem, where Paul was recognized as a legitimate apostle. And he was recognized as as a messenger of grace to the Gentiles. And from that day on, all the apostles respected him. And Peter even references him later in his writings, as we'll see in some of this. So, Jesus. Jesus is our starting point. And any review and interpretation of Scripture has to be run through the paradigm of Christ. That's what we call the Christological view of Scripture. And I'll tell you that there are... As many denominations as there are, there is as many thoughts as to how to interpret Scripture. But the Christological view of Scripture means everything is about Jesus. And didn't Jesus say, all of the law and the prophets are about me? Point to me? Isn't that what he told to the guys on the road to Emmaus? So anytime you look at the Scriptures from Jesus, to see Jesus in the Scripture, I think you're in safe territory. It's when you start stepping away from Jesus to start spinning what, you know, well, maybe, maybe God meant this. Or maybe God meant that. That's when you're going to start having trouble. Because when you, when you start turning from Jesus to the maybes, you, you open yourself up. And, I'm, and we're going to hit that at some point down the road in more detail. But, and then I gave you the, cro- the quote from C. Baxter Kruger, which is in there, and I don't really want to take the time to read that today. But read that quote again. Because it is, I think, a very accurate assessment but about how do we read the Bible? Why do we read the Bible? What assumptions should we make? What assumptions should we not make? Know this. Everybody comes, when they come to Scripture, they come with their own set of assumptions. And that's why you get how many different versions of the Bible are there now. 
It's because you get a people, group of people together and they go, well, I think this word means this. Well, I think it should be translated this way. And you get different versions depending on whether you're a strict legalist. You get a different version if you are a mixed message person. And you get a different version if you're a universalist. And I'm not suggesting we be universalists, but I'm saying people come with different perspectives and it changes how scripture gets translated. That's why it's important to have the picture of Jesus, the, the plumb line of Jesus. And then Karl Barth, we, theology must begin with Jesus Christ and not with general principles. However better or at any rate more relevant and illuminating they may appear to be as though he were a continuation of the knowledge and word of God and not its root and origin, not indeed the very word of God itself. Anytime you look and say Jesus is not the word of God, is not the origin of the word of God, then you've contradicted John chapter 1. Because in the beginning was the word. And so I just want to just ponder that. Ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate that. And last week we talked about the age of the apostles. And we started with Apostle Paul. And I added just a couple comments here. As I told you last time, it's grace, baby. But Paul was chosen by Christ after the resurrection. Think about that. Why did Jesus choose an apostle after the resurrection instead of staying with the 11 that were still alive at his death? Any ideas? Say that again. He'll have a totally different perception. What else? Do you think it's possible that Jesus is, is pointing, putting the church on notice that I'm going to raise up leaders from time to time? I'm capable of raising up leaders and I'm capable of taking the nastiest, ugliest, meanest legalist and turn him into a grace teacher? It, makes you feel better, doesn't it? it really does. <laughs> There's hope for lawyers. <laughs> And I gave you some scriptures just to confirm Paul's commission. You, uh, backing up one, you got Galatians 1, 3 through 5. I'm not going to read those today. Galatians 1, 6 through 7. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. But I will read that one. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And if you go back to our first discussion way back about Abraham, he has this covenant of grace. And I gave you all the scriptures here, and if you don't have a copy of that, I can print you one up. But he gives us all the covenant scriptures of grace for Abraham, who never lived under the law. The law is an aberration to grace was never intended to replace grace. It was something God used because he had some stubborn people he had to catch their attention. Then you've got Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. You can read that one on your own. And again, I'm flying through the apostles because I covered those last week, but I just want to give you a resource. The message of Paul is confirmed again in Ephesians 1, 7. These are additional scriptures, 1 Corinthians 1, 30, Romans and here at the bottom, the message of grace to the Gentiles was accepted and confirmed at the Council of Jerusalem 50 A.D. And I want to pause at the Council of Jerusalem a minute. You have all of these 
people who had known God, at least we, we know we have at least the apostles. We have the replacement apostle. I believe there were women there because there were mighty women of God in that time frame. And they came together. They were all, at that point, Jews, led by James. So in 50 AD, we realized that there still needs, you know, there's leadership. The apostles realized there needed to be leadership or else you have anarchy. And James did a wonderful job of steering that. But they all sought the, the counsel of the Holy Spirit, right? They sought the counsel of the Holy Spirit and they came to a conclusion. They came to a decision. And at that point, that's the example of how councils are supposed to be. That's the example of how church structure should begin. There should be a council with someone who's appointed to be the spokesperson who can bring order. Because God is not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. And when we can come and counsel together, when we can come and reason together in the presence of the Spirit of God, we usually can reach a solution. And so I just want to plant that thought for you. All right, then we talked about Peter. He was a disciple. He was martyred. He was martyred roughly the same year that Paul was. So two of the most prominent apostles are out of the picture by 67 A.D. He wrote First and Second Peter. Some say he wrote the book of Mark by dictating it to John Mark. Others say John Mark wrote it as a first-hand account of what he saw in Peter. But it pretty much reflects a lot of Peter. And there's the Gospel of Grace. Again, he confirmed at the Council of Jerusalem that grace is, in fact, the message of Jesus because he told of his own experiences amongst the people. He knew Jesus. He taught Christ as the basis of salvation. He confirmed Paul's commission to the Gentiles. And I, wanted, I think you probably should highlight that or underline that. Paul wasn't a lone ranger. He submitted himself to the council, and they approved his message. Acts 2, 22 through 24, I love this. Men of Israel... Because this is the first evangelistic message from an apostle. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst as, your, as you yourselves also know. And in verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. That's the very first gospel evangelistic message. We should be paying attention to that message. Don't you think? So if we develop a belief system independent of this message, we need to check. Are we in error or are we not? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then 30 through 32, therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Yea, God. There were witnesses. And in a court of law, you know what the most unreliable testimony is? eyewitness testimony unless you can corroborate it by in the old days in the old common law if you didn't have two witnesses you couldn't get a conviction for a criminal offense 
because of the unreliability of eyewitness testimony. But here we got, we got in that time frame, we know that all the surviving apostles, we know the two on the road to Emmaus, I mean, there were just multiple witnesses. And those witnesses' testimonies are carried down through history. And then 1 Peter 1, 3 and 13, he talks about, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Anybody ever thought about girding up the loins of your mind? What do you think that means? Ponder it, think about it, meditate on it. Don't just put it on the shelf. The more you ponder it, the more you think about it, the more you're going to be able to rest in that hope. That's grace. All right. You can look at 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21 on your own. I'm going to keep flying through the apostles a minute. 2 Peter 3, 15 through 17. And consider that the long suffering of our, of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. This is where Peter cross-references to Paul. See, we don't connect the dots that they're sharing the same message. Oh, there's Peter over here, there's Paul over here. And Peter's going, wait a minute, not only has he, given, has he written to you, as also in all of his, all his epistles, speaking in the, of, the thing, of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You see, he's saying, hey, I've read Paul's epistles, and I'm validating them. Ooh, that's pretty cool. Peter, who preached the first evangelistic message, validates Paul's epistles. And what are Paul's epistles? Epistles of grace. Grace plus nothing. And Peter's saying, that's right. Now, Peter is stuck dealing with some, some of the Jews who are from the transitional generation. He can't totally get there in some of his teachings because he's teaching to an audience they can't get there. Why? Because sometimes they have to be untaught and sometimes they're unstable and they twist things. Well, you know, Terry... I think the Ten Commandments, you still have to live by them today. And you better live up to every single one of them because if you violate one of them, you're going to hell. That's the crowd that he was, he was teaching to. And, he's go, and so he sort of backdoors it and says, oops, sorry about that, guys. He sort of backdoors it and says, why don't you read Paul's epistles? You know, we know Peter had at times, he was a little bit shy about speaking, right? I don't know that man. I don't know that man. I don't know that man. But I thought it was interesting, and I wanted to highlight that for you, and I encourage you to think about that. Peter affirmed Paul in his writings. That's important. And then we, have, we talked about the Apostle John, who was the defender of truth, of Jesus Christ. And he's the Apostle of love. And I really pondered John this week, because I really believe that it's the grace of Jesus Christ as taught by Paul that opens the door for us to receive the love of the Father that John talks about. And if we don't understand grace, we'll have a difficult time accepting the love. And I want to encourage you. There is eternal logic in the message of grace and the message of love. They're not exclusive. They, they, they are both in us. 
But it is the grace that opens the door to the love, and it's the love that opens the door to the healing because it's the love that drives out the darkness. It's the love that drives out fear. And it's a process, and sometimes it's a painful process. But it's also the place where healing has the the greatest impact. And so I just want to encourage you with that. And that's what John's writings are about. You know, the book of John is all about the love. First John is about the love. Second John and third John are more about dealing with some of the heresies, and we'll talk about those in a couple of months. And then the book of Revelation, who knows what the book of Revelation is. If you know the book of Revelation, come teach me, because I'm still trying to figure all of it out, because it's so full of mystery to me. Other than to say that the very end of the book of it, and I'll show you in a minute, talks about grace. John was an apostle who personally knew Jesus. He taught Christ as the basis of salvation. He spoke in depth about the love of God as the foundation of God's actions towards humanity. Anytime we think God is doing anything other than acting out of his love, we're in error. So when you talk about judgment, you have to talk about it from a a love perspective, not a retributive punishment perspective. And we've talked about that in the past. John 15, 9 and 12, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Reads well, sometimes hard to do. Right? Why is it hard to do? Because we got twisted thinking sometimes. We have pain. We have darkness. And sometimes we just have to go, Jesus, I know that's the standard. I can't do it without you. Right? Is there anything we can really do without him? No. Except screw up our lives. John 17, 23 and 26. I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. If there's any question that God loves you, that's the verse to land on. I love them as you love me. Period. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Where's Jesus? In us. Where's his love? In us. I may not always be consciously aware of it, but it's always there. And if I'm having a moment of darkness, if I can get myself to the point of saying, God, this is just a dark moment, but I know your love is there, and I know you're there, Jesus. Help me. Things will change. Because he wants to do that. It's just sometimes it's just a matter of retraining our thoughts in the midst of the moment of our, of our darkness to go, God, this looks ugly, but you're not, and you're here. And so something has to change. Can you guys do that? Can you say that? Not right now, but in your your darkness. That's what he's trying to get us to. In the midst of when his love bumps up against our darkness and we have that cataclysmic moment of pain, Jesus, this hurts. But I know you're you're bringing healing in the midst of it. See, instead of going, is this ever going to end? And I've been there. You guys been there with me at times? I mean, God, is this ever going to end? You go, God, I know it's going to end. It has to end because you are good. It's a retraining of our mind. Peter talked about people's minds being a problem. We saw saw that a few minutes ago. And then, of course, you've got John 3, 16 and 17. I love verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Sozoed. See, we quote John 3.16. We see it in the football stadiums. 
Let's quote 17 for a while. Because that's the one that's going to, people are going to go, what? What? He didn't come in the world to condemn the world? Why do I feel condemned then? Well, you feel condemned because you've been living in a, in a world that teaches condemnation. And if you're in church, you've been in a church that preaches condemnation. So let's get out of it. Yeah? Anybody with me? I'm swimming out of it. And he identified Jesus as grace and truth. Dropping down here to John 1, 16 and 17. And of the fullness we, we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Who has grace in this room? We all do. You are graceful people, whether you like it or not. So get over it. I'm not saying get over everything you're going on, but I'm saying right thinking helps. So we receive the fullness of God by grace. And here's Revelation 22, 21. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with the Bishop of Grace and not the rest of you. No. All. Guys, I'm having fun. I don't know about you. Then we went to the age of the apologetics, and that's kind of where we started down that road last time, and then it just got to be a little bit too much. So we're going to pick up here in a little bit more detail. The apostolic fathers faced a world steeped in polytheism and pagan worship. As the message of grace is going out outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, you start running into all of these pagan religions. I mean, just go to the Paul when he's engaged in Mars, the sermon on Mars Hill, or when he's talking on Mars Hill to the Greeks. They had all of these statutes identifying various gods. And they even had one to the unknown God. So he met him where he, they were at, and he talked about this unknown God. Let me tell you about this unknown God. His name is Jesus. Bam, 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 bam. And he just, he just taught. And so the, the, as part of the message of grace bumping up against pagan worship, most pagan religions also are very legalistic. Why? Because what is religion? It's man's attempt to define God. Last time I checked, I don't think I'm capable of defining God. I just don't have the intellectual capacity to do it. Besides, my darkness blinds me to truth. So, if you're trying to define God... You're going to put rules and regulations in place so that this God won't strike you dead. This God you're trying to define. And so then you get children's sacrifices in some cases. You get some really bizarre stuff. And we see that in the Old, in the Old Testament. There's some really bizarre stuff that happened in pagan practices. There were sex cults in the times of Jesus and Paul and the, and the apostolic fathers. You know, there were just, you name it. There were all, if it was depraved, it existed as a God. And so they're trying to figure out how to deal with this because they're bringing the message of grace into these pagans who are so steeped in their own style of legalism and their own style of behavior, which they think is normal. And yet other, and you have these Christians over here who are 
came out of the Jewish tradition and they're looking at these pagans and they're going, hey, that's just not right. They need to change their behavior. God isn't going to love them if they don't change their behavior. They're going to lose out on those blessings of Abraham if they don't get their act together. And so you got one segment of the church judging these young believers. Does that sound like anything we've heard before? How many of you know people who came into the church because they were just living a really bad lifestyle and they get into the church and oh, we love them into the church, we share the gospel of grace and two weeks after you're in the church, now you need to start reading your Bible, you need to start praying, you need to be in church every time the door opens and by the way, you better not go down to that theater that has three X's above the door. And what do those people do? Well, some of them turn and leave. I can't live like that. You told me this was about grace. Others go, okay, I can do that. And they turn out like us. After 25 years, they got really miserable. <laughs> right? And then God used that to waken us up. And so you've got, you've got them trying to deal with that. And so what happens is you start getting these early church fathers, this first generation after the apostles, they start writing epistles to the various churches as well. And those epistles are designed to help bring some order, not because they want to put down the law, but they're realizing that they're trying to blend people from different cultures. And what happens if you don't assimilate into a culture? If you open your doors to every single person in the world and you don't have a process of assimilation, what do you get? Chaos, anarchy, civil war. And so these early church fathers, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are trying to bring some assimilation of togetherness. And some of their writings sound harsh at times because they're looking at certain behaviors and going, come on, people, you can do better than that. But they're not doing it from a perspective of, thou shalt do this. They're going, come on, grace is not supposed to be abused like that. There's a difference in attitude. All right. Their evangelistic concerns were, were over the, pra, the, the paganism of the day. So, we're roughly in this 35 to 100 A.D. area. So the age of the apostolic fathers. The early church fathers fall into three basic categories. This is new material. The apostolic fathers, the anti-Nicene or before the Nicene Creed church fathers, which I call the, ap, the apologetic fathers, and the post-Nicene Church Fathers, which are about after 400 A.D., and we're going to talk about them down the road. So right now I want to just focus on the Apostolic Fathers, which is the first generation after Jesus, and the Apologetic Fathers, which is the second and third generation after Jesus and after the Apostles. So the Apostolic Church Fathers were contemporaries of the Apostles. And what I mean by that, they all were alive at the time of the Apostles, and they probably all knew an Apostle. Okay? And they were probably taught by them, carrying on the tradition and teaching of the apostles themselves as their direct successors. Example, Clement, would be, Ignatius, and Polycarp were all appointed to their bishop positions by an apostle, an original apostle. So you got Peter appointing apostles, you got Paul appointing apostles. Why are, why are they going around to different churches in different areas and appointing successors, appointing bishops? Why are they doing that? Because they're trying to bring a way to resolve conflict by having someone 
who's going to hold fast to the early teachings or to the, the authentic teachings of Christ so that when conflict comes up, they can go to the bishop and go, hey, Bishop of Grace, what do you think about this? Instead of being at war with each other. And they listen because they recognize the bishop as someone who has wisdom of, and the presence of the Holy Spirit who can talk with some level of authority. Because we know that, that the Holy Spirit gives us apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists for the edification of the body. So if certain people will rise up by the presence of the Holy Spirit with wisdom and will be recognized in those positions. And we should look to them for wisdom. But we shouldn't look for them to tell us that we have to follow their vision. We need to follow Jesus. There's a difference. Is that making sense? You guys are looking like, oh, this is going fast. I don't know if I can stay with this. You can get the tape. All right. Clement of Rome, we talked about him last week. 35 AD to somewhere between 99 and 110 AD. When you see that slash of years, it's because there's no consensus on when he died inside the historians of the church. He was consecrated by Paul, appointed by Paul to serve as the Bishop of Rome. And he wrote one book of significance called First Clement, and it was written to the Corinthians. And it was, when he wrote First Clement, it was a response to a revolt to church leadership in the, in the local community. Now, we already know because of Paul's writings that the Corinthians were sort of an unruly group of people. Paul, 1 Corinthians, wrote as a corrective letter to some of the practices, the pagan practices that had been still brought into the church or still had not been, that grace had not yet moved out of people's lives. And so he was call, writing to them not to condemn, but to encourage, hey, come on, look at grace. Grace changes us from the inside out. We have to be prepared to look at our, our old practices and go, gee, is that really grace? Or should I think of something else in, in my behaviors? He appealed for unity and order by looking at the teachings of Christ and the actions of the apostles. So he took these people back to the teachings of the apostles and back to the teachings of Christ. When there's disunity, where do you want to go? Back to Jesus. And that's what he did with them. And in 1st Clement, it says, The church of God which is at Rome, and this is a quote out of there, to the church of God which is at Corinth, elect, sanctified by the will of God through Jesus Christ our Lord, grace and peace from the Almighty God, by Jesus Christ be multiplied unto you. Now, when he said elect, sanctified by the will of God, he's commending them. He's not condemning them. He's going, hey, I know that you're, you like Jesus. I know you're in love with him. I know he's at work. He's not saying, you idiots, what are you doing? He's appealing to them. He's appealing to the love of God in them. That's a good way to start resolving conflict, don't you think? Because if you start shaking a finger in a person's face in this country today, what's going to happen? You're, they're probably going to break it. And in, in 1 Clement chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Let us consider what is good and acceptable and well-pleasing in the sight of him that made us. Let us look steadfastly to the blood of Christ and see how precious his blood is in the sight of God, which being shed for our salvation has obtained the grace of repentance for all the world. Now, he's a disciple of Paul. Can you hear that there? He studied under Paul. That's Paul. Let us search into all the ages that have gone before us and let us learn that our Lord has in every one of them still given place for repentance to all such as would turn to him. What, what's the definition of repentance? 
Turn. Turn where? To him. Here it is, in the, one of the first generations after Paul the Apostle. Chapter 4, verse 9. Hence we find all the ministers of the grace of God have spoken by the Holy Spirit of repentance, and even the Lord of all has himself declared with an oath concerning it, as I live, saith the Lord, I desire not the death of a sinner, but that he should repent, that he should turn. It's Paul's message. I'm not, and when we teach that today, we're not making it up. It's consistent with the early church. And then there was Ignatius of Antioch, who was a student of John. And I changed this from last time. He was more against the, the Judaizers, and I meant to redo the label, but I just didn't get there. And he was martyred. And here's one of his quotes, taken from the book of Magnesius, chapter 6, verse 1. Take care to do all the things in harmony with God, with the bishop presiding in the place of God, and with the presbyters in the place of the council of the apostles, and with the deacons, who are the most dear to be entrusted with the business of Jesus Christ. He's beginning to put organization to the church. He's recognizing the role of the Council of Apostles. He's recognizing that there's a bishop presiding, which in the original council was James. Why? Because someone's got to do the administrative work. Someone's got to coordinate things. And then he's recognizing the deacons. And if you remember, when they were getting bogged down with the day-to-day life, what did they do? What did, they first, what did the first set of apostles do? They appointed deacons to care for the widows and orphans, right? So we see this structure, and this is, this is early on. This is in the, right around 100 AD. So we have this structure going on, but yet today there's so many different structures of church organization, which creates confusion, which creates problems. And so I put that one in there just to show there is a place for order in the church. And it's not something that we should take lightly, and it's not something that we should throw up, throw to the wind and say anything goes. All right, he served as Bishop of Antioch, and he wrote seven epistles or letters to the church that survived today. He opposed the Judaizers, the Domitists, and he warned against false doctrines and teachers. And I gave you some quotes of his. This is from his letters to the Romans. And I'm going to jump down here. To them, he talks about being wholly filled with the grace of God without wavering and strain clear from every foreign die, etc. He's saying, you are filled with the grace of God. Don't waver from that. Don't go Jesus plus. Don't go grace plus. And you can read that whole quote for yourself. But he's writing, one of his letters went to the church at Rome. Why? Because there was beginning to be some, is it Jesus plus or just Jesus? And he's saying, being wholly filled with the grace of God without wavering. Don't debate grace. Accept it as true. He wrote to the Sumerians. This is zero, zero. That's in his introduction. Ignatius, who is also Theophorus to the church of God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the beloved, which has been mercifully endowed with every grace being filled with faith and love and lacking in no grace. You lack in no grace. You are filled with every grace. Every blessing of Abraham was a blessing of grace. 
And you have the grace and promises of Abraham in your life. Chapter 6, verse 2. But mark ye those who hold strange doctrine touching the grace of Jesus Christ which came to us. And what he's talking about there is grace plus. He calls it a strange doctrine. Well, we'll talk about grace, but then we're really going to go over here. And he's saying, beware. Beware. Don't do that. Stay in the purity of grace. He wrote a letter to the Magnesians. Don't you just love these names? In chapter 8, caution against false doctrines. He writes, Be not deceived with strange doctrines, doctrines, nor with old fables which are unprofitable. For if we still live according to the Jewish law, we acknowledge that we have not received grace. Ouch. That was a rebuttal to the Judaizers. That's a rebuttal to some segments of the church today. Ouch. We acknowledge that we have not received grace. And then he goes on to talk about how the prophets lived according, for the divinest prophets lived according to Christ Jesus. On this account also they were persecuted, being inspired by his grace to fully convince the unbelieving that there is one God who has manifested himself by Jesus Christ his Son, who is his eternal word, not proceeding from forth from silence, and who in all things pleased him that sent him. You can see John in that quote right there, can't you? He's a disciple of John, and he's talking about God. He's talking about Jesus in chapter 1. Polycarp, we talked about him. He wrote a letter to the Philippians, and he writes in his praise of the Philippians, in whom though now we see him not, ye believe and believing rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, into which joy may desire to enter, knowing that by grace ye are saved, not of works, but by the will of God through Jesus Christ. Now coming back over here, who's Polycarp? Wow. He's a disciple of John's. He got the grace message. And he writes in chapter 3 of expressions of personal unworthiness. And I'm going to start in verse 2 there. For neither I nor any such one can come up to the wisdom of the blessed and glorified Paul. He's talking about Paul. He's acknowledging Paul's writings, right? He, when among you, accurately and steadfastly taught the word of truth in the presence of those who were, who were then alive. And when absent from you, he wrote you a letter, which if you carefully study, you will find to be the means of building you up in the faith. And verse 3, which has been given you and which being followed by hope and preceded by love towards God and Christ and our neighbor is the mother of us all. Wow. Love and grace is the mother of us all. Doesn't that kind of help you relax a little? For if anyone be inwardly possessed of these graces, he hath fulfilled the command of righteousness, since he that hath love is far from all sin. Wow. See, you see the consistency coming out of the apostles into that first generation? This is not new. Then we got the age of the apologist, which is the anti-Nicene fathers who, or excuse me, the, the pre, yeah, anti, meaning pre-Nicene fathers who came after the apostolic fathers and before the council of Nicaea. Such individuals as Arrhenius, Hippolytus of Rome, Justin Martyr, there's some of those. I, these would be these six here on my board. Tertullian, Origen, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, 
Arrhenius of Lyons and Hippolytus. They are the second generation after the apostles. Third generation from Christ, second after in terms of church history. The second century brought with it steady growth of Gentile Christianity, but not without opponents and the rise of various heresies. Gosh, look around today. Do we have heresies today? Why? Because the devil's not an originist. (laughs) He just keeps repeating the same lies over and over and over. This led the early church leadership to further develop creeds and formulas. Last week I passed out to you the the Roman creed, the old Roman creed, which which came in during this time frame. If you didn't get one last, there's a couple over here yet. But it's the first attempt to define what we believe as a, as a unity of believers. I'm not going to reread it right now. I read it last week. You can take a look at that. But this is, this is their, the role of these, these apologetics is to look at all these heresies that are out there, start to refute them, and start synthesizing down to a simple expression of faith. And that's what a creed is, is a simple expression of faith. And so they're beginning to do that in this process. And the growth of the church has also brought critics Lucian, Galen, Sellus, these are some of the ones that these guys specifically began to attack. And they're primarily, if you look at the history of this generation, it pretty much starts right around 100 AD and moves out from there. Irenaeus was born in 130. Justin Martyr, Justin Martyr, Martyr's not his last name. It's just that he was Justin the Martyred. So they shortened it to Justin Martyr. He was born in 100 A.D., Tertullian in 155 A.D., Origen in 184, Clement of Alexandria in 150, and Hippolytus of Rome in 170. So these guys cover from basically 100 to about 300 A.D. And, and that's basically what they're doing, is they're writing against heresies and they're synthesizing down to a common faith that can be spoken in all languages. Because now at this point what you also have is the Old Testament written in Hebrew. You've got Paul's writings in, in Aramaic and Greek. And now these guys start writing in Latin because this is a generation. This generation is pretty much non-Jewish origin. They come out of Gentile backgrounds. They, most of them come out of the Roman Empire. And so they're writing in Latin. Now, how many of you know when you go from Hebrew to Greek to Latin, to English, sometimes there are translational errors. That's why it's important to come back to their writings. All right, Arrhenius, he's the first one, disciple of Polycarp, and he was called the most important Christian theologian between the apostles in the third century. He was Greek-born. He was born in, in part of what's called Roman Proconsular Asia, which is southern Turkey. He was raised in a Christian home. As a youth, he heard and knew the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp. And he often talked about his conversations with Polycarp, who talked about John. So there's this connection back to John. And he writes, Irenaeus also relied heavily on the teaching of the New Testament, because by now, these guys all had copies of the letters of the apostles. And they had the Gospels, because they were all written down by now. And he used them to refute the claims of the heretics. And he explained that in the church writings can be seen the unfeigned preservation coming down to us of the scriptures with a complete collection allowing for neither addition nor 
subtraction. And now you're getting to the point where by, three, by the mid-300s, we're getting down to where we're going to have a canonized version of Scripture. Because there are lots of letters out there floating around. But they pull from the ones that come and that are consistent with the writings of the Gospels. And they're consistent with the writings of John. And they're consistent with the writings of Paul. Anything other than that, you have to question. And that's what he's saying here. He was the first one to call the Gospels authoritative in the church. He was the first that, um, that the, he looked at the tradition of the apostles manifest in the world and tried to hold to their tradition of what they were teaching. He testified to the church's Trinitarian understanding of God's nature. He was a Trinitarian. He believed in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three in one. There are some today that claim the Trinitarian philosophy is a new, is a new theology. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You know, he, did, he was saying it even before it was confirmed at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. He was a Trinitarian. I'm a Trinitarian. I'm not ashamed of it. Arrhenius believed that Jesus' redemptive work in his incarnation, perfect life, death, and resurrection was a victory in Christ for all of God's enemies. He wrote Christ for all of God's enemies. He wrote Christ fought and was victorious for he bound the strong man, liberated the weak, and by destroying sin, endowed his creation with salvation. When did Jesus destroy sin? At the cross. And isn't it interesting, he's talking about, Jesus talked about the binding of the strong man. He did it at the cross. So if Jesus destroyed, bound the strong man, and liberated the weak, can the strong man come back and tie us up again? Not really. I can be deceived in my mind, but he really can't do that to me. If I understand what Jesus has already done. Apologists are, it's a term used to anybody who, who stands up and contends against a heresy. It, 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 it's a word that means to speak against. It's not that they're making an apology as we would think about it for Jesus. They're actually, it's a, it's a theoso- uh, theological construct of people who actually refute people who are claiming anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's just a term that was applied to them, not because they're making excuse or asking to be forgiven, but because they're declaring that this is what the truth is. Your heresy is false. Does that help? He also wrote a book called Against the Heresies. And in chapter 23, verse 8, he wrote, For men are saved through grace and not on account of their own righteous actions. Who does that sound like? Paul. Then there's Hippolytus of Rome, who was a disciple of Arrhenius. So you got John, you got Arrhenius, you got or, yeah, Polycarp, Arrhenius, Hippolytus of Rome. Comes a little bit later in the, in the apologist era. He opposed popes who relaxed moral standards to accommodate those coming from paganism. He got excommunicated, by the way. And later was brought back in to the church. He was the first rabble-rouser of significance inside the church. Okay, he just called it like he saw it. Sometimes he called it wrong. So if you read his writings, he sometimes calls it wrong. He would tend to be more legalistic than grace. So you have to kind of be careful when you're reading some of his stuff. But some of the things he does say, uh, he was a presbyter of the Church of Rome, meaning a bishop. um, And he, he came into conflict with this pope called Zephyrinus. And 
because of that, his conflict was about Christological opinions or Christ-centered opinions, but he created a lot of havoc inside the church. And so they finally, because of the havoc he created, they kicked him out. Now, when that pope died and another pope came in, they restored him. But sometimes church discipline is a result of being too aggressive, too excessive, and not being willing to listen. And he's an example of that. But he wrote this treatise on Christ and the Antichrist. And there's some really good things in it. I'm going to drop down to the highlighted section, which is, I'm actually just start above it. The web beam, therefore, is the pass of the Lord upon the cross. And the warp on it is the power of the Holy Spirit. And the woof is the Holy flesh wrought or woven by the Spirit. And the thread is the grace which by the love of Christ binds and unites the two in, in one. I have no idea. I suspect that warp and woof and all of that stuff is some, either something to do with some kind of weaving concept or else it's beam me up, Scotty. It's a weaving term. Okay. Um, I just wasn't sure, but, you know, I, I'm willing to be beamed up if that's what the Lord wants, you know. Um, and the workers are the patriarchs and the prophets who weave the fair, long, perfect tunic of Christ. And the word passing through these, like the combs or rods, completes through them that which is which Father willeth. And he's basically saying is, grace is the thread. You have to pass the concept of grace through the patriarchs and the prophets where they're consistently carrying forth grace. And if you start to get outside of that line, you're going to create issues. And so that's what he was challenging these popes on. He felt they were going outside the line of grace, not paying attention to the earlier church um, fathers, and were beginning to make things up on their own. He called them out on it. That's a legitimate call out. There were times he called them out on things that it got personal, and that's why he got excommunicated. And from the apostolic tradition of Hippolytus, he also writes, chapter 1, verse 1, we have set forth as necessary that part of the discourse which relates to the spiritual gifts. All that God, right from the beginning, granted to people according to his will, bringing back to himself this image which had gone astray. And then dropping to verse 5, with the Holy Spirit conferring perfect grace on those who have the correct faith. What's the correct faith? Jesus. And so that they will know that those who are the head of the church must teach and guard all these things. He's saying to them, look, there are spiritual gifts, but they're still submitted to, to, the, to the authority structure of the Holy Spirit in the church. We all know that if you've got a self-proclaimed prophet out there running around, that could be a problem if they're not recognized by the church as authentic prophets. And, no, and you can normally tell a false prophet. You know how? Look at me. I'm the prophet. Give me your money and I'll give you a prophecy. And they're not talking about Jesus. They're talking about themselves. Okay, chapter 3. You who gave the rules of the church through the word of your grace, who predestined from the beginning of the race of the righteous through Abraham, who instituted princes and priests. Again, he, he takes through the word of your grace and he ties it back to Abraham. Gee, what do we see over here in this grace coming all the way through Abraham all the way down the line. So he's, he's keeping a, a historical perspective. He's, so he's saying you can't forget the historical perspective of God. 
And then chapters, you can read chapter seven on your own. Uh, chapter four of an, another one of his works, I should, I should have put the title up there, I didn't. Going down to verse eight. Who, when he was delivered to voluntary suffering, he's talking about Jesus, in order to dissolve death and break the chains of the devil and tread down hell and bring the just to the light and set the limited manifest of the resurrection. He brings the just to the light. Who is the just today? We all are. Why? Because at the cross, he declared us all righteous and just. All of humanity. He brings the just to the light. And it's the light of Jesus Christ. It's the, it's the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are redeemed. We are not condemned. Interestingly, he talks about tread down hell. You want to start a fight with somebody today? Start talking about hell. See what, see what reaction you get. I find it interesting that he says it was that Jesus tread down hell. You can read that a couple different ways, but one suggestion is he did away with it. There are people out there that say that. I don't know exactly. I've told you before. I'm not fully settled on all of that because there were six different interpretations of hell when Jesus walked the earth. And he never definitively said which one was correct. So, and we'll talk about that someday down the road. That's one of my future teachings. And then there's Justin Martyr. On the day which is dedicated to the sun, this is a quote from him, all of those who live in the cities or who dwell in the countryside gather in common meeting. And for as long as there is time, the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. What is he saying? Don't lose sight of the apostles' teachings. Don't lose sight of the martyrs' teachings. Don't lose sight of the early church fathers' teachings because the minute you do, you're going to move into error. Whew. I could go on and on and on. And that's a little bit of history about him. You can read that. He wrote something called The Dialogue with Trifo, where he's dialoguing with a Jew. And it's a work that's decidedly Christocentric and exegetical, meaning everything he talks about is Jesus. He stays focused on Jesus. He doesn't get pulled off by this Jew into the historical Jewish perspective of God. He's going, no, you've got to stay with Jesus. You've got to stay with Jesus. And this quote here that, that I've highlighted, and I shall prove to you as you stand here that we have not believed empty fables or words without any foundation, but words filled with the Spirit of God and big with power and flourishing with grace. I highlighted that because he keeps talking about grace. Everything comes back to grace. Chapter 32, and again, I attempt to prove that to prove all that I have adduced in the hope that someone of you may be found to be of that remnant which has been left by the grace of the Lord of Seboeth for the eternal salvation. So he's talking about there's always going to be a remnant of people who believe in grace. Their voices may be drowned out at times, but there's always a remnant of grace. Moreover, the prescription that the twelve bells be attached to the robe of the priest, which hung down to his feet, was a symbol of the twelve apostles who depend on the power of Christ and the eternal priest. And through their voice, it is all the earth has been filled with the glory and grace of God and of his Christ. The, what he's saying is all the apostles proclaim God, Jesus, and grace. And it fills the earth. And then there was Tertullian, who was a lawyer. Da, 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 da. And he was a, he was a Roman centur son of a Roman centurion. And he grew up in North Africa. So now we're not even in, we're not even dealing with people that were born in, 
in Israel, we're dealing with people now who are spreading out into the empire. And here's a quote. A controversy over the scriptures can clearly produce no other effect than to help upset either the stomach or the brain. Translation, don't argue with people about what's, what a verse says because it's not going to accomplish much. Stay with Jesus. Keep your life focused on Jesus. Keep your life focused on grace. And if someone wants to say to you, you're crazy, you're an idiot, you're preaching a false gospel, you go, I love you. I'm going to stay with Jesus. Feel free to hang with me if you want, but it's okay if you don't. And don't take the bait. He also wrote, We worship unity in, in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding of the person nor dividing the substance. There is one person of the Father, another of the Son, another Holy, of the Holy Ghost, but the Godhead of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. He's a Trinitarian. Here's some more of his quotes. God the Father's a deep root, the Son's the shoot that breaks into the world and the Spirit spreads the beauty and fragrance. You know, you carry the fragrance of Jesus. That's pretty cool. You can read the next quote yourself. Then we have Clement of Alexandria. He, he, he primarily was an apologetic to the educated Greeks. He hated Gnosticism and he was a prolific author. His first work is entitled Exhortation to the Greeks, and it was basically a call to the educated Greco-Roman society to hear the gospel of Jesus. He also wrote Miscellanies, which is another work, which is about Gnosticism. And here's a quote from the Exhortation of the Heathen. Have then God's promise. You have his promise. Become partaker of his grace. And do not suppose the song of the salvation to be new. What he's saying is the message of grace is not new, it's not a vessel or a house that is new, for before the morning star it was. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a quote from John. Error seems old, but truth seems like a new thing. I highlight it. Error seems old, but truth seems like a new thing. Why does error seem old? Because we're comfortable with it. When we butt up against truth, it seems like, ooh, really? And then we wrestle with it. And then, for according to the inspired apostles of the Lord, the grace of God which bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. See what he's doing? He's quoting, he's quoting the apostles. He's quoting Paul. The grace of God has appeared to all men. So we're two generations removed from Paul and he's still quoting Paul. That's a good thing. And then there's Origen, who wrote commentaries on the Old Testament. He actually wrote commentaries on John and Matthew as well. He opposed heresy. He was a pupil of Clement of Alexandria, and he wrote something called De Principis. This is Book 2, Chapter 1. If, however, they are out of the body, then they will altogether escape the annoyance arising from a disturbance of that kind. But as they will not be also immediately to escape all bodily clothing, they are just to be considered as inhabiting more refined and purer bodies, which possess the property of being no longer overcome by death or of being wounded by its sting, so that at the last, the gradual disappearance of the material nature, which is both swallow, which is death is both swallowed up and even at the end exterminated and all its things completely blunted. Did not, did not the writings of the, of the Gospels uh, and Paul say, oh, death, where is your sting? I mean, you remember that? And what he's basically saying is death can't destroy grace. He's, he's saying death, 
the sting of sin, of death is sin. But he's saying it can't destroy grace. And he goes on in the commentary on John in book 5, he talks about of his fullness all we received and grace for grace show as we have already made clear that the prophets also received their gift from the fullness of Christ and received a second grace in place of that that they had before. So you're saying the old prophets in the old had a level of grace, but they didn't have full revelation. And then he makes this comment that you can, you can ponder that they received a second grace. And I ponder it from the perspective of what happens to those people, what happened to those people that died before the cross? Are they in hell? Are they in heaven? He's talking about a second grace. I have no idea exactly what that means because I haven't studied enough, but it makes you wonder. I mean, do you think all the people that live before Jesus are in hell? I don't think so. Why? Because we have a grace line. Now, if we have a grace line that comes from eternity past, grace had to touch those people somewhere, whether they knew it or not. That, I think, is the last one, isn't it? That was a fast overview. But now you have a tool which allows you, if you want to go deeper, I've given you names, I've given you titles of their works, you can Google them, you can call them up. I will tell you some of them some of them sound legalistic because they're trying to combat paganistic practices, but they're not doing it from a thou shalt not. They're doing it, come on, this is what grace really is, and this is how grace changes us. And while you're in the process of changing, you might want to think about this. That's a good thing. But it's not, that's not what saves us. It's Jesus that saves us. It's his grace. It's his love. It's his mercy. Paul, Peter, John, James, that's what they wrote about. Different perspectives at times, but that's what they wrote about. That was warp speed. We are going to come back later in the fall, and we'll pick up there, because from here, from about 250 A.D. to 400 A.D., there's a lot going on in the church. And I just decided it was too much to try to get into right now. I wanted you to absorb some of this. I wanted you to ponder for a while this thread of grace coming through the first 250 years. Did that come forth? Did you see that today? We really haven't stepped off the cliff. We are still firmly grounded in the teachings of the first three apostolic ages. So...